I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, The first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee. And Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee, they're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the Green Notebook of Eric Barker. Now, I've been a huge fan of Eric's for the last couple of years. He's the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, and the creator of the blog by the same name. And his latest book plays well with others, a surprising science behind why everything we know about relationships is mostly wrong. He provides a guide for those looking to build better friendships, reignite love, and get closer to others. Now, I learned a lot recording this episode because we focused the entire episode around four questions. One, can you judge a book by its cover? Two, is a friend in need a friend indeed? Three, does love conquer all? And four, is no man an island? And leveraging a ton of research, Eric provides us with some surprisingly counterintuitive advice that will help us change the way we interact with people. So get ready to have some of your ideas turned upside down, and please welcome to the show, Eric Barker. It's great to be here. Eric, so today we're here to talk about your latest book, Plays Well With Others, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Relationships is Mostly uh, Wrong. And I like to start at the tail end of the book, and uh, I actually read your acknowledgments. It's like one of the weird things that I do. I like to read people's acknowledgments in their books. And you mentioned, you thanked Tyler Cohen for putting your your blog on the map. Before we talk about the book, could you kind of start there? Yeah, I mean, I I started my blog on a lark back in 2009, and it was Tyler Cowan who really started aggressively recommending it to his platform to people, and I I am forever indebted to him. He he was uh, you know a big big advocate, and that was the that was the first way my my blog really got noticed, and uh, you know he he really spread the word, and it was it was it was really flattering, and it, frankly, it changed my life. I remember starting mine in uh, in 2013 and getting really excited when you know 400 people would read a post and then that you know it's it's grown with time was it something similar with you was it, or was it like were you chugging away for a while and then all of a sudden there was a a boost or was it kind of from the get go Tyler noticed your blog and started recommending it it was within a couple of months it was I, I was very 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 lucky in in that sense it was just within a couple months of of me starting the blog and you know that definitely motivated me to keep going yeah it, it's something that that I've been following for I think like 2 3 years now and and I first came across it I watched a great documentary called bookstores how to read more books in the golden age of content by Max Joseph you can find it on uh on YouTube it's an amazing documentary it's not that long I think it's like 20, 30 minutes, but, uh, but there's some great tips for, for reading more in there. And, and, uh, you know, I think within the first five minutes of the documentary, Tim Urban, another blogger who I'm a huge fan of, you know, was talking about how popular your blog is and, and, uh, how a lot of people follow it, but he was pointing out your reading habits, which I'd like to talk about real quick before we 
dive into the book. Yeah, I I read a lot. <laughs> I, I think that's probably the, the best way to put it. I mean, basically, you know, I'm always kind of, you know, reading a lot of different stuff. I'm always looking for stuff that I can, you know, blog about, but also I'm just, I guess, a pretty, very curious person. So, you know, my personal reading ranges all over, but I, I'm also looking for stuff for the blog. And And what's funny is, you know, no matter what, so much of what I'm, so much of what I'm reading, even for my personal life, you know, often ends up like carrying over and being useful in terms of, you know, uh, the blog, in terms of uh, future, future books I write. So, you know, it's just kind of always been the case. And um, I don't know, it's a huge part of my life. Yeah, I, I know for me personally, when I first started, you know, realizing that there's some power in reading, I would tackle one book at a time. And, you know, at least in military circles, some of the stuff that they have on reading list is really horrible <laughs> to try to work through. Like, you've got to really buckle down. It's like eating the, you know, the worst tasting food ever <laughs> and just fighting through that. And so what I started doing was picking up multiple books. And so now I read four or five books at one time. And as I'm, you know, reading like one of these harder to fight through books, as soon as I start feeling myself getting tired, I'll put it down and then immediately switch to, to something else. Do you do something similar? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, like I'll buy a bunch of books and, you know, if, if something doesn't grab me, you know, I will put it aside. I mean, if it's something, you know, work related that I think has valuable content, even if I don't appreciate the voice, even if I don't like maybe particularly think it's well written, you know, it, it might have value for for my work. But other than that, no, it's like I don't feel obligated at all to finish books if I'm not enjoying them. And, you know, I will read multiple books, usually something for pleasure or something, you know, for my work. But no, I, I think it's it can be helpful, you know, because you pick up you, you know, it's if something's a bit of a slog, you know, it's nice to jump back to something else. It's kind of kind of like mental crop rotation. <laughs> That's a great way of putting that. You haven't written that anywhere, have you? Uh, I, I have used that <laughs> phrase before, so yeah, it's. Oh uh, man, never it's, mind. It's, it's, it's in the it's in the standard Eric lexicon, I, I believe. Yeah, so so yeah, I I am very dedicated to a book, and so for better or worse, I will slog all the way through a book just to finish it, even if like I, I'm struggling with it, and I just really hope it's like a Cracker Jack box, like the you know maybe by the time I get to the bottom the prize will be worth it. And, you know, it's about 50-50, however that shakes out. Sometimes it pays off. You know, it's like, for me, there's real high opportunity cost, I guess I, f I feel. But, you know, and sometimes, again, especially if, especially if it's nonfiction, you know, if I'm not digging it, I will look at the chapter headings and maybe skip ahead to something that, you know, if, if it seems like there's something further on that might have more value. But now, if, if something's not working, I, I'll usually ditch it and move on. This wasn't the plan, but you know, now that I, I think about it, this is a really good segue to the first chapter of your book. Are we able to judge a book by its cover? And what you learned about our ability to read others, um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we're terrible at it. <laughs> it's, uh, but why? <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, that's, and that's something I, I get into as well. I mean, that Basically, with strangers, we can read other people's thoughts and feelings accurately, roughly only 20% of the time. With friends, it's closer to 30%. And with spouses, we peak at like 35. So whatever, whatever you think is on your partner's mind, two-thirds of the time, you're probably wrong. And, you know, what it comes down to is if we could really like always read what was going on in other people's mind, and, and this is backed by research, you know, it wouldn't always be pleasant. If we could detect every white lie, if we could detect, you know, every time somebody was second guessing things, you know, it would drive us crazy. Our anxieties would have anxieties. It would drive us nuts. So it's almost like a protective mechanism to, to keep trust, to keep balance. You know, the research shows that if we divine what other people are thinking and it helps the relationship, sure, that's a positive. But if we divine what people are thinking and it's a negative, it can hurt the relationship. We tend to think that, you know, always understanding everything is good, but we all naturally have bad moods, good moods. We, we vacillate. And to be able to pick up on every one of those would just, you know, destroy our equilibrium of feeling good about things. 
So in some ways, it's great that we're not, but I do, I do talk about ways that we, we can you know, somewhat get better at reading other people. I'd like to talk about some of the ways in which we are bad about that. And, and you talk about that as well as you talk about biases that they kind of come up when we meet people and, and even, you know, people that we do know that kind of creep into that relationship. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we get rules of thumb, you know, about what people are like. Basically, you know, whenever we meet somebody, there's, I get into the research on first impressions. And what's really interesting about first impressions, as opposed to the everyday, you know, trying to interpret thoughts and feelings, first impressions, our first impressions are pretty accurate. Roughly 70% of the time, you know, when we first meet somebody, the read we get on them is, is pretty good. There's a lot of research on thin slicing that if we just get to, you know, watch somebody on a video for just a few minutes, you know, we can generally detect, you know, levels of competency and a lot of fundamental personality traits pretty accurately. Like I said, roughly 70%. Now, again, 70%, that's, that's a D in school. So it's, it's not great, but it's certainly better than chance. But what happens is that's the double-edged sword of first impressions is that they're more accurate, they're more accurate than, than chance. However, once we make them, they tend to stick. You know, so if we do read somebody wrong, it's going to be very hard. We have to make some effort or we have to be exposed to a lot of contradicting information for us to update those assumptions about people. And we usually don't do that. So it can, it can be very tricky once we you know, get it in our heads. And the other problem is that our positive beliefs about other people are, are always going to be more accurate than our negative beliefs. And the reason for that is if you get a negative first impression of someone, you spend less time with them, you know, of course. And if you get a positive impression of someone, you spend more time with them. So with your positive impressions, you get more chances to test your assumptions versus if you never deal with anyone again, they never get a chance to correct you. So, you know, one way over the long haul that we can improve our first impressions is by giving people who make a bad impression a second chance, you know, because otherwise there's, there's no way to update it. I think that one of the things that we do too is, you know, you talk about meeting somebody and having a positive first impression. We kind of start giving that person idiosyncrasy credits. And as conflicting information starts coming out, we quickly dismiss that as, uh, no, no, that's not, that's not that person because of that, that first impression was so strong. Oh, absolutely. That can be part of the problem, especially with toxic personalities, you know, is that a lot of the research shows that narcissists make really good first impressions. And we kind of lock on to that. And so when they start exhibiting the negative personality traits, it usually takes, you know, weeks or months for enough of those negatives to accumulate for us to go, you know what, this, this isn't a nice person. This isn't a person I want to deal with. And in that interval, you know, they can, they can do a lot of damage to our lives potentially. The other thing that uh, you mentioned in the book is, I guess, you know, is our ability to make assumptions about what other people are thinking too, along those lines. Like you said, you know, our accuracy is not that great. And so we start, like we're a story making species. And so we immediately add a story to it. And, you know, just a funny, you know, antidote was, uh, you know, like you and I were supposed to do this interview a couple of days ago and, you know, we had a snafu with the, with the link. I immediately added a story to it (laughs) until I heard from you. I had no data on you whatsoever, but my mind immediately went to, this is what's going on on the other end. (laughs) And it turned out to be wildly inaccurate. And I think that's just a great example. And we do that all the time at work with our spouses, you know, with our significant others. Like it's, it's something that we have to pay attention to. Especially in romantic relationships. This is part of the problem is that for long-term romantic relationships, you need to communicate. And the problem is that we can stop communicating or we can be afraid that, oh, if, if we have a fight, things are going to break down. But the truth is the research shows that only, you know, was it 40 percent of the time uh, do like ongoing screening matches result in in divorce? What's much more common is that people start living parallel lives. They stop talking. You know, you scream and yell when you care. Uh, once you stop caring, you know, you like I said, you just live parallel lives. That's what usually leads to to divorce. We shouldn't be as afraid of of fighting. That you know what we should be afraid of is not talking, because that's what happens. Is 
we start telling that story, we start filling in the gaps. And instead of having a conversation with the other person, we're having a conversation with ourselves. And we're saying, oh, well, they think this, they did that because of this. And very often, you know, those, those things can be, can be negative, you know, especially over the course of a relationship. And the other person, you know, you're the prosecutor and they don't have a defense in the courtroom. So there's, there's no way for them to correct your errors, you know, unless you open up and talk to them. So no, that's, that's absolutely the case. Yeah. And let me just want to back up a little bit. You know, one one of the things that uh, I mentioned it briefly in the introduction to the podcast, but what Eric does is, you know, he reads, you probably read what, like thousands (laughs) of, of scientific studies. And then you take phrases that we just throw out there every day. So like, we just talked about judging a book by its cover. You know, a friend in need is a friend indeed, which I want to talk about in a little bit. And then like, does love conquer all? And then you you look at the science and the data that either, you know, backs those aphorisms or, you know, just completely tears them down. And that's that's one of the ones that we're talking about now is, is love conquering all. Like, it really doesn't, does it? I mean, you know, part of the angle I take is that it doesn't necessarily. I mean, in the United States currently, we have you know roughly a 40% divorce rate. So obviously, love does not conquer all. But that said, if we do the right things, you know, your love potentially can con- conquer all. It's like we, we just need to get some insight. But no, you're absolutely right. That's what I do, you know, often on the blog. And it's explicitly what I do in, in you know, both of my books. Uh, I'm barking up the wrong tree. I look at the maxims around that we grow up with around success, you know, like, you know, do nice guys finish last? Is it what you know or who you know? And basically, I take the research and I kind of stress test. I play Mythbusters with those maxims to see if they're accurate or not. And and the new book, it's the same formula, but it's for relationships. You know, does love conquer all? Is a friend in need a friend indeed? I look at the research and and stress test them and see, are these accurate? And what's a more accurate, perhaps, uh, version of it? And like, how can we, how can we leverage that to, to have better relationships? I love that, you know, again, the, under the, the title, the heading love conquers all, you say that all the time when we meet other couples, we're always asked, well, how did you meet? How did you, how did you get together? And, and you say like, that's the wrong question. It's interesting to look at because I think that's obviously a good story. It's usually, you know, kind of nice, romantic, maybe funny, but what we don't ask is how'd you stay together? And of course, in polite conversation, you know, that, that, has a more negative tinge to it. But I think that's where we learn, you know, what it takes to make marriages, long-term partnerships work is, you know, not necessarily how did you meet. That might be useful for for people who are still dating and looking to meet someone. But, you know, we need to to figure out those those answers to how do you deal with the issues and difficulties that inevitably crop up in a long-term relationship and how do we how do we successfully, you know, deal with those? Yeah. And again, going back to this idea of that we are, you know, meaning making species. So we tell stories for everything. I thought it was really interesting how you point out how we will, you know, take facts, take events, and then we add our lens, our filter through it. And and two of the, you know, kind of deciding factors on whether, you know, people survive or they end their relationship is is negative sentiment override and positive sentiment override. Could you talk about the those two and the differences between them? Yeah, basically, when people first fall in love, you know, it's this overwhelming, you know, emotion. And probably the biggest, clearest hallmark of love is idealization, is that we just think the other person is the greatest. And every, everybody knows that. Everybody can, can relate to that. And the research shows that's, that's accurate and that we're not utterly deluded. You know, we, we usually can see the negatives. We just kind of turn down the volume on them. They're not that important. They're not that big a deal. Or those negatives are cute and charming. But what happens often in a relationship is, you know, to use a physics metaphor, just entropy. You know, things things break down. There's a regression to the mean. And if issues aren't dealt with, then that idealization, like I said, it dies down. It can become negatively biased. In other words, you can become disillusioned with your partner. The idealization can can not only drop, but become negative. And this isn't uh, like, you know, to your point, this isn't just an incremental shift. Like, you know, it's it's more like a phase change, like water gets colder and colder and then becomes ice. And we become negatively biased where, you know, if, if, uh, if they do something, even if we have a negative view of it and they do something good, we're like, okay, what do they want? 
you know, you become cynical or suspicious, it becomes a negative bias. And that's, that's really difficult, you know, but with work, you know, we can maintain, you know, even grow that idealization. And that's what's what John Gottman calls positive sentiment override, which is to maintain that positive bias, to maintain that assumption that problems caused by your partner you know, are not deliberate. They're not out to get you. They just made a mistake. My, my wonderful spouse, you know, just, you know, must, must have overlooked this, you know, and that's, that's really critical because once negative sentiment override gets going, you know, it can be, it can be hard to stop that train. You know, we, we want to keep that positive bias because that's, that is the center of like what love is and where love comes from. Yeah. And you know, when, when I got to that chapter of your book, I've thought back on my own, my own marriage, my own relationship. And, and I, you know, at one point, like we were there <laughs> at negative sentiment override, like everything that the other person was doing was only viewed through that negative lens and, and, uh, you know, adding stories to it, you know, then like looking back on past events and adding that negative, negative spin to it. And, and what I found was putting the work in, doing the work through counseling and other things, like we, we were able to shift that. And it made a world of difference. And I could now go back and see events through that positive lens. But yeah, it was it was almost like brain poison, you know, during that period. Oh, no, it's, it's really difficult. I mean, the biggest problem with uh, marriage counseling is that most people go too late. You know, it's usually like, I think, six years after the first problems in a marriage that on average that people go to counselors. And, you know, usually by then, you know, it's to use a medical metaphor, you know, it's like if you catch a cancer early, you can deal with it. But if you wait six years, you know, then it can become terminal. And in that same way with with marriage, it's like if you if you deal with those things early, that's really good. And I talk about that in the book where we have a tendency to kind of make marriages black or white. They're good or bad. And the truth is that at all times, you know, there are negatives and positives in every relationship. There's a ratio. And John Gottman, the leading researcher on on romantic relationships, it says that that ratio is really critical. Basically, what you want is five to one, five positives to every negative. Because, like I said, you're never going to eliminate all the negatives. And beyond that, actually, you know, Gottman says that if, if the ratio gets too good, that's a problem. Because if you get to 13 positives to every negative, what's probably happening is somebody is not expressing their concerns in the relationship. Human beings, always, there's always something. And if you get to too positive, it's usually because somebody's not opening up about their concerns or issues. And uh, Gottman has a very funny line where he he says, you know, because a lot of people think like, oh, you know, my, my relationship's great. We, we've never fought. We never fight at all. And Gottman says, if you've been in a long-term relationship for years and you've never had a fight, he's like, please do that immediately. You know, it's like you you, yeah. you need to get that stuff out. You need to communicate because there's always negatives. There's always positives. And the truth is, a good amount of research shows that that ratio, that having more positive is actually more important than reducing the negative. That, you know, it's, I, I guess the metaphor would be, it doesn't matter how, like trying to reduce how much money you spend you know, is, is, is fine, but the better answer is to make more money. You know, the, so in, in this case, it's reducing the negative is, is good, but it can actually be, be more bang for your buck to try and increase the positive because Gottman found in his research that 69% of issues between couples, long-term issues never get resolved. Like you're still going to argue about that. So it's not about eliminating them because often you can't. But what you can do is be more diplomatic, kind, compassionate around those negatives and work really hard to actually increase the positives. And that can be the answer to a successful long-term partnership. Hey, folks, it's Joe here. And I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you are looking for an education, this is the place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So... If you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu 
forward slash Army One and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. Thinking back to an interview I did uh, probably like six, seven months ago with Rabbi Mordecai Finley, who, you know, in addition to leading his congregation, uh, his temple, he's also a marriage counselor. And he, he just talks about how, you know, a lot of times, like beginning with the emotion that you're feeling, in that moment and working through that before you even <laughs> immediately target the other person and then go from there instead of just just firing again that those negative tendencies we have and, and Gottman actually talks about that you bring up in the book is the four horsemen um, that when they show up that's when things are, are going south really fast yeah those were the key negatives basically Gottman has what he calls the four horsemen which are criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. And those four predict divorce with over 80% accuracy. And those are the critical negatives that can happen. And basically, criticism, complaining is good for a relationship because it raises issues. You're not staying quiet. Criticism is when you personalize them. Complaining is to say, you didn't take out the trash, you know, Criticism is you didn't take out the trash because you're an idiot. Right, right. You know, that's, that's when you make things personal. Defensiveness is when your partner raises an issue and rather than addressing it, you immediately shoot back with, oh, yeah, well, you didn't take out the trash. You know, you're now escalating it as opposed to dealing with what they raised. Stonewalling is when you just shut down. They raise an issue and you just kind of go stone-faced and don't even want to, don't want to deal with it. And contempt is when... You act like your partner is on a lower level than you. And contempt is the absolute worst. Uh, Gottman describes it as sulfuric acid for love. It's just, it's terrible. And so by reducing those four, you can go a long way towards reducing the bad, the really bad negatives in a relationship. That said, there is one other main point worth mentioning. And that is that, like I said, you're never going to get rid of all the negatives. And Gottman found that, that even if some of the four horsemen are present in a relationship, if couples engage in what is called repair, you know, the, the fact that when fighting, they tell a joke, they hold the other person's hand, they acknowledge blame, you know, you can do things, even if criticism, defensiveness, stonewall, and contempt are there, you can do positive things to correct for that, to make up for it. So even if somebody heard those four and said, oh my God, we do those, 80% is not 100%. They're not good, but even if you can't reduce them as much as you like, you can still take repair methods to try and make them better. Well, yeah, and on that, like you start the chapter out with a warning, like, hey, I'm, I'm gonna make you mad <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when I like throw all this stuff at you, but you end it with like four tips you even coined a coined a term for it. You call them the four R's to magic. Would you mind just covering those real quick? Or are we are we giving away the book right now? I'm happy to get into a, a little bit there. You know, I mean, the four horsemen are the negatives, and you know, reducing the neg. Like I said, in the end, it's all about that five to one ratio. So, you know, reducing the the four horsemen helped to bring that negative closer to the one. And then I talk about the positive things you want to do that that help boost the positive. You know, bring that number up to five. You know, and there's a number of things that you can do. The first is I talk about, you know, rekindling, which is basically just to, you know, improve the positive emotions. Because, you know, especially in early love, that feels like, just feels like magic. It just hits you and it's it's passive. It's out of your control. Once you're in love with somebody, those positive feelings just appear. You don't have to do anything. And that's one of the subtle, trickier issues we have here is that because love is so visceral, immediate, and out of our control, we feel like we don't have to do anything and that that'll be sustained forever. And that's just not the case, you know, uh, is that we do need to be proactive. But we get lulled into it, you know, that, that oh, it's just going to be this easy. And it's like, no, as, as the saying goes, you know, marriage takes work. And one of the best ways to keep those positive emotions going, because you can't just turn them on, you can't just love your partner, make yourself love your partner more, is by leveraging excitement. Basically, there's the psychological principle of emotional contagion. And what that is, is that whatever environment, whatever's going on emotionally in an environment, we tend to associate with whoever is there, you know, kind of like Pavlov, making those like unconscious associations. 
So by doing exciting things with our partner, rather than dull stuff or just nice, pleasant stuff, by doing exciting things, you know, we can create these very positive emotions. And if we're with our partner, we will come to associate those with our partner. This isn't as you know, cold and engineered as it sounds, because that's exactly what we all do at the beginning of every relationship. The beginning of a relationship, you know, you go on fun dates and that usually dies down. People don't usually do that as much. People think, oh, you know, well, we were in love, so we did exciting stuff. And it's like, that's true. But the reverse is also true. You know, because you did exciting stuff, that's also why you fell in love. So we can sustain love by sustaining those exciting dates, by always kind of going out and trying to do stuff rather than just kicking it with Netflix and pizza, you know, trying to get out there and, you know, you can go on roller coasters, concerts, horseback riding, like something exciting, fun, different, where you feel you're growing and learning and enjoying yourself. Those emotions will be extended to your partner if you do those things together. And that's that's one of the key things I, I talk about in terms of how you can sustain the positive and hopefully get to positive sentiment override. Uh, it's one of the key things I talk about in the book. Well, there you go. We were really negative for a little bit, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we just pulled the plane back up. The other thing that you discuss in the book is the uh, kind of the role that friendships play in our life. And, you know, a lot of times you say, well, my spouse is my best friend or whatever. And you've discovered a lot about friendship in the chapter. Uh, was it a friend in need, a friend indeed? Yeah. Basically, friendships make us happier than any other relationship. And this is, this is work by Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman. And, you know, we derive the greatest pleasure from our friends. Sorry, spouses. We, we derive the greatest pleasure from our friendships. And the, the irony is that friendship, you know, is the one relationship. Friendship kind of gets screwed. Friendship doesn't have a designated institution, a designated lobbying group, you could say, behind it. You know, if you, if you stop liking your spouse, they don't cease to be your spouse. You, you, know, so you stop liking your kids, uh, they, you know, they're, they're still your kids. You, you stop liking your boss, they're still your boss. But, you know, friends, you have to like them. And so there's no institution kind of enforcing uh, the friendship bonds. And that makes friendship fragile because there's, there's nobody backing it up. If we don't do the work, friendships fade. And most people, you know, when they get into adulthood, they, they see this, they realize this. Now, the positive aspect of that, the positive spin is that the fragility of friendship actually proves its purity. That's the reason that friends make us happier than any other relationship is because friendship is 100% voluntary. You know, it's like I said, your boss, your spouse, your kids, you have a level of societal contractual obligation there. We never have obligation with friends. You're only there because you like them and they like you. And that aspect that it's always voluntary, that's why, you know, they make us happier because otherwise we wouldn't do it. So friendship is really critical, but like I said, we don't give it its due. We don't give it what it deserves because it doesn't have those societal bonds, those institutions that back it up. I would, I would argue that, that friendship deserves better. Yeah, and it was so important that Aristotle even commented on it, right? Yeah, Aristotle, 2,000 years ago, Aristotle defined friendship as another self. And that's, you know, really kind of heartwarming definition but what's really crazy is that relatively recent science has backed that up. More than 65 studies have now shown that that is how your brain interprets friendship, is that the closer you are to someone, the more your self-concept and your concept of them blurs. When you put women in an MRI machine and you say the name of their best friend, the areas of their brain for self-processing actually light up. When you ask people, does this trait describe you or does this describe, you know, your best friend? It takes them longer to answer than if you say, is this trait true of you or, or some distant acquaintance? It takes our brain longer to disentangle who our friends are than who we are. Friends actually are another self. And, and it's really heartwarming because when, you, when we think about, you know, Darwinism and biology. It's like, well, from that perspective, why would we care about anybody who wasn't a blood relation that doesn't help us pass on our genes? And that's how our, our brains have evolved to kind of get around those Darwinian dictates because we actually see those unrelated to us that we care about. We see them as part of ourselves. We see them as another self. 
And I think that's a, a really wonderful way to understand what, what friendships are to us. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense too, when you couch it like that, because, you know, like when we lose a dear friend, you know, the friendship just falls apart. There is like a mourning process that you kind of go through there. Oh, and again, that, that shows up in the literature about the another self thing is the closer friendship was, the more central a friendship was. When those friendships break down, people are more likely to say things like, I don't know who I am anymore. I feel like I've lost a part of myself. And that once again demonstrates that Aristotle was right, that, you know, friends are another self. And when, and when we lose close friends, it really does feel like we're losing part of ourself. Yeah. And the other aspect of that that you highlight in the book is, uh, you know, beyond friends that we, but we also have people that we call frenemies and they don't do well for our, our well-being, do they? No, uh, this is research by Julianne Holt-Lundstad, and she found that, you know, enemies obviously are bad, but enemies don't drive us quite as crazy as frenemies do. And the reason is, enemies, we know what to expect from them. We don't like them. They don't like us. That's clear. We know where we stand. With frenemies, you're always on edge. So, you know, is the person going to be nice this time, or are they going to be a jerk again? And that uncertainty actually drives up our blood pressure and increases our chances of depression, you know, more than dealing with enemies does. And the really terrifying thing is that frenemies, which the formal definition is, you know, ambivalent relationships, is that frenemies actually make up 50% of our relationships. And the research shows we don't see them any less than friends that we really do like. And that's why, you know, it could be, that's why this is something we, we really need to navigate well, because it's, you know, it's, it's prevalent and it's tricky. I'd like for you to tell a story real quick that you talk about in the book. And that's of two enemies that actually became friends. And for whatever reason, like I never heard of it until I, I read this book. And that was Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint. Yeah, I, in the book, I have to illustrate, you know, issues around friendship. I, I talk about the multi-year, uh, you know, war of sorts that went on between Larry Flint and Jerry Falwell. Larry Flint was the uh, you know, famous, or perhaps I should say infamous, publisher of Hustler. He made pornography, uh, you know, in the 1970s. And Jerry Falwell was the, the leader of, you know, religious organization uh, in the United States. And so these two just went back and forth. You know, Falwell, you know, accused Flint of, you know, being morally horrible. And so, you know, Flint put a satirical ad in Hustler magazine that, you know, I don't know how much I can go, go into uh, on this podcast. I don't know if this is a family podcast. Yeah, or not. this is uh, this is like a PG, maybe. Okay, like, that, uh, you know. Yeah, that definitely painted uh, Mr. Falwell in a very bad light. And Falwell sued him for millions of dollars. And this lawsuit waged on because there was multiple appeals. Both sides spent millions of dollars just, just trying the lawsuit. And eventually it actually, you know, Flint initially lost. He lost again. He eventually appealed to the Supreme Court. And in the Supreme Court, Flint not only won, but he won a unanimous decision. And now you would think two men who hated each other from the get-go, who had completely different views on morality and free speech, who spent millions of dollars fighting each other in the courts, trying to make the other person look as terrible as possible. And then this goes to the Supreme Court, and this is a became a landmark of People versus Larry Flint, became a landmark Supreme Court case. It's taught in law schools to this day. It's one of the biggest free speech cases out there. And you would think these two men would just absolutely hate one another. And obviously for years they did. Yet after it happened, after the Supreme Court verdict came down, Falwell visited Flint. They talked and Falwell invited Flint, like, why, why don't we do a series of public debates, you know, on issues of free speech and morality? And Flint agreed. And the two started doing these, you know, debates in public. And it was strange because there started to be a shift in their relationship where Flint had been, had been shot by a white supremacist and was confined to a wheelchair. And you might think that for these debates, that these two would come out like on opposite ends of the, the stage, like prize fighters, and Falwell would push Flint's wheelchair for him. And the two started with joke, you know, in the debate, 
you know, uh, uh, Larry Flint would satirically, kind of satirically say that, that Falwell was his uh, religious leader and Falwell would say that Flint was his most rebellious parishioner. And the two got to know each other. And they started to realize they had things in common, that they had both grown up in the South, that Falwell's father had been a bootlegger. Larry Flint had been a bootlegger. They both loved to make practical jokes. And as the years went by, they stayed in touch. They sent each other Christmas cards. They sent each other photos of their grandkids. And then finally, many, many years later, Falwell passed away. And the LA Times posted an op-ed that was basically an obituary. And it was written by none other than Larry Flint. And Larry Flint said that, you know, the craziest thing of this war we waged of this thing is the most unexpected result that came of it was that by the end we became friends. And to just see that two people so different who waged war in public, spent millions of dollars, did everything to humiliate the other, I mean, that they could become friends, I, I think that, that can give us all hope. Yeah, and you actually highlight, you know, through the research and, and using that as story to, to illustrate some of the lessons that, that we can take with us when we're navigating the rocky relationships of, of people who are enemies or people we don't agree with. What's really critical, I, I talk on the book, is Dale Carnegie is probably the person that most people go to for friendship advice. You know, there's not a lot of, I believe me, I struggled writing the book because there's not nearly as much advice on friendship as there is on, you know, marriage or on raising kids or on, again, friendship gets neglected. But most people go to Dale Carnegie. And the funny thing is, the majority of what Dale Carnegie says is accurate. There's only one exception. He, he said to try and put your person, yourself in the other person's shoes to see things through their eyes. And truth is, the research, uh, most of it by Nicholas Epley at University of Chicago, shows we're actually terrible at that, like I was saying about reading other people. But that said, the majority of the other things that Carnegie says are accurate. The only issue is Carnegie's stuff is very focused on the early part of relationship, on like first meetings. He doesn't really teach you how to become good friends, deep friends, like another self-friends, like Aristotle talked about. Carnegie's book is much more transactional. It's much more for business relationships, business contacts, influencing people. But to make those really tight bonds, we need to go past what Carnegie talked about. And the two critical things I talk about in the book are time and vulnerability, those are the two things that are really important because those are costly signals. Most of the things that Carnegie talks about are pretty easy to do, and that's, wh that's why we like them. But that's also why manipulators like them, because they're easy to do. They're very shallow, simple things to appear like a friend. Time and vulnerability are two things that are they're costly. They're hard. We only have so much time. You know That's why it's scarce. That's why it's valuable. And vulnerability, opening up to someone, telling them our fears, our concerns, our weaknesses— those things can be used against us. But when we demonstrate them, we show the other person clearly that we trust them. And when we trust other people, they're more likely to trust us. And those are the real critical things if we're trying to make serious, long-term, Aristotelian, another self-type friendships. Yeah. And it's as you go throughout the book, Eric, I mean, you really highlight as you get towards the end, and I, I don't think I'm ruining anything by saying this, but we're geared, we're wired towards uh, community as, uh, as human beings. There's no doubt about it. One of the most interesting studies I found was that while friendship obviously is fantastic, if you were to acquire five new friends, that would make you happier, would make you feel better. But if those friends know each other, as opposed to, you know, not knowing each other, that actually makes you even happier and increases support. Same number of friends, but the difference between you being the only person who knows each one of them, like a hub and spoke type relationship versus them all knowing each other, that community where everybody is, is friendly produces a notable increase in positive feelings, in support. Friends are great. Communities are even better because of that communal team, tribal feeling where we can really help each other. You know, friends only individual, but when your friends know each other, they can talk to one another and they can say, you know, hey, Eric doesn't seem like he's doing so well. Maybe we should do something for him. That collaboration is impossible when friends don't know each other. So friends are great, but, you know, communities are even better. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, a lot of times we, we kind of take that for granted in the military is that, uh, we're kind of thrust in these communities of, of people from all different races, creeds, and backgrounds. And 
And then we, we go through this hardship together, whether it's a deployment or a training exercise or, you know, some sort of physically demanding event. And then there's just something that happens in that, that brings people close together as, as a team, as a tribe. And it's something, again, like I say, we, we take for granted, but that's, you know, a lot of the, the well-being, you know, the, the mental wellness that we have in the military, um, I think some of the, one of the positives is it could be attributed to that. The idea you're talking about is well-proven time and time again. That's one of the reasons why, you know, fraternities and sororities have, you know, hazing-type rituals. It's that issue of when we make sacrifices for a group, we feel a closer bond, you know, with that group. And this is critical, you know, for, for when we have these loose ties, loose memberships, you know, that doesn't build a strong feeling of community. You know, when we sacrifice for something, we believe in it more. And that might sound, you know, weird or contradictory to some people. But I mean, probably the best example is to look at, you know, children where, you know, especially today, at least in the United States, you know, most kids are pretty well provided for. They have food to eat. You know, they have plenty of entertainment. They have support around them. Most, you know, you know, do do have this. But that doesn't stop parents from wanting to do things for their kids, from wanting to provide for their kids. Parents naturally want to sacrifice and do things for their children. Even when kids are well taken care of, we still want to perform the act of caring. We want to do things, you know, and that's part of human nature. We, you know, it's like certainly when we value something, you know, it's like we want to make sacrifices for it. But the reverse is true as well. When we sacrifice for something, we value it more. And, you know, I'm not surprised that in the military you've seen the same idea that having to struggle together, having to work together, you know, these are the things that, you know, really build teamwork and a feeling of community and we've seen something of a drop off in that in the modern era where we've we've seen a, a loss of that feeling of community we've seen you know over the past 200 years but very much accelerated in the 21st century so much of a rise in individualism and many positives have come from that no no doubt but we've also lost something in terms of that community support something that that we really do need man that's uh i <laughs> I would say like, let's end it there, but let's try to pick it up a a little bit. And I think that one of the things that I've learned over the last couple of years, I've talked about it on the show before, but one of the things we started doing, we call it family fitness opportunities. I learned it from, uh, from General Miller in Afghanistan and he called it, uh, it, you know, the mission was resolute support and he called it resolute support fitness opportunities. And every Sunday we would all come together on the base and do a physical fitness event together. And, you know, every Sunday you'd go out there, there'd be hundreds of people out there, you know, participating, but they were from every nation that was supporting the NATO mission. You know, it was just men, women, different races, different ethnicities. And so there was just a sense of community doing that every single week that kind of brought everybody together. Cause you're doing this, you know, a lot of times on staff work, we kind of, you know, we get a little soft to hardship. And so doing that, we would, build community, build teamwork. And so when I came back, I really missed that. And so I started family fitness opportunities on the weekends <laughs> and uh, my wife, my kids. And a lot of times it's even our neighbors and our neighbor's kids come out too. And we do the exact same thing that we did over there. And, uh, you know, like it doesn't come without kids kicking and screaming sometimes, but it's a great way to kind of you know, build that excitement between me and my spouse because we're doing something hard together. Yeah. You know, teach lessons because we're, you know, really pushing ourselves physically and then just kind of come together over hardship. And that's, you know, that's been, it's a small act every week, but I think the impact of it's huge. Completely aligns with the research I've read. That sounds like a fantastic idea. I, I'd be surprised if it didn't have, you know, a, a very positive impact. It was really smart of you to carry that over from your military experience and, you know, bring it into your, your personal life and share it with others. I mean, that's really something. That wasn't out of being smart. That was, <laughs> it was out of my own mental health, Eric. I was, <laughs> I was struggling missing the team because of those bonds that, that we formed over there. So it was a, a way for me to transfer that over. And, you know, we've been doing it just about every weekend for the last two years. And so, uh, so yeah, so I, I don't want to say I did it out from a position of strength. I actually did it from a position of, uh, of struggle. So if listeners hadn't heard about you, 
before this interview. Where can they find you? I mean, obviously, uh, both my books are available on Amazon and other stores, plays well with others, and Barking Up the Wrong Tree are the two books. My blog has a, the URL is Japanese. It's a pretty difficult uh, for, for many people to spell. So if they go to ericbarker.org, E-R-I-C-B-A-R-K-E-R.org, that will redirect to my blog. The best way to follow the research and insights that I try and pull together on how to, how to live a better life is to sign up for my, my newsletter. And that's really the best way, the books and the blog. And just a, a plug for me, like I, I've been subscribing to the newsletter now for a couple of years, and uh, I, I look forward to reading it every time it comes out. It generates my own thinking with my own blog and my own newsletters. So uh, thank you for that, Eric. I did, you didn't even know you were doing it. It warms my heart to hear that. I'm, I'm glad that when people, when people do stuff, you know, like when you talk about the military, it's like you're face-to-face and you have an impact on people and you, you see it because they're right there. So it's really great to, to hear you say that because, you know, it's like I'm, I'm just sitting here on my laptop on the couch and, you know, I, I hope I'm having an impact. So, so to, hear that, to hear that it is affecting people, it really makes me feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Eric, thanks for your time today. This was an awesome discussion. I enjoyed rehashing the book with you. And uh, again, it's plays wells with others, surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. It was published in May of 2022. So again, Eric, thanks so much for your time. That was great being here, man. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud. There's a